This episode of Mossback is presented by the Port of Seattle. The owner of the pig says, well, you got to pay for it. And he names a price, which the American thinks is outrageous. Even, you know, it's basically, well, I don't owe you money, but if I did, I wouldn't pay that much for the pig. everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're looking back at the pig war, or the time the U.S. almost went to war with Britain over a dead pig on San Juan Island. How would our world be different if that war had taken place? If you haven't already seen the video, we suggest you stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on Crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. The San Juan Islands in Washington are a wooded paradise in the Salish Sea. Popular with tourists, boaters, summer folk, and orca pods. But the peaceful beauty of these islands was once broken when two nations loudly rattled their sabers. Over what, you ask? An argument over a dead pig. Let's set the scene, I guess. Um, so, so it's 1859, right? That's right. 1859, and the border between what is now Canada, then part of Great Britain, had been set at the 49th parallel mm. until it came to the Salish Sea. And then the border ducks down so that it includes all of Vancouver Island on the British side. But there was a, a chunk of that border that the treaty that determined the border was unclear about because it mentions going through a channel through the islands and the Americans and British had a different idea of where that channel lay. Now, it's it's important to remember that Great Britain was sort of the first impactful colonizer of what we think of the Pacific Northwest. The Hudson Bay Company had come out here. They'd established forts and trading posts. They built the first farms, the first orchards, the first school, you know, mm-hmm. from, as, from the standpoint of Europeans. Right. There were many powers that were interested in the Northwest. The Russians up in Alaska, they went down as far as Northern California, but they didn't settle. The Spanish did a lot of the early exploration, but they didn't settle either. And then you have the Americans, and the Americans tend to come in swarms. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you, you send Lewis and Clark out to check, check things out. You, we have a few of our American uh, fur traders out there. And so there was a decision early on to jointly occupy the Oregon Territory. Hmm. And this is essentially Washington, Oregon, Idaho, parts of a few other places. And uh, this is, of course, where all the big fur trade action is taking place. The Columbia River is in there, major waterway. Mm. And then, of course, you've got the Salish Sea extending up the B.C. coast. It's an important area. Americans and British sort of agree to jointly occupy. But the Americans, with manifest destiny in, mm. in their minds, and, of course, in the 1840s, there was a... a strong expansionist, America must grow, and this this is our territory. 54-40-year fight, you know, some want the border, 
way up you know, near Alaska. Hmm. And with the Oregon Trail, you begin to get a pouring of American settlers into the Oregon country, and they begin moving north. And one of the great examples of this is George Washington Bush, a black settler who came out on the Oregon Trail when he got to Oregon. His party, they realized that Oregon had passed a law banning black people from Oregon. And so he and his group, the Simmons Party, they called it, went north of the Columbia River, figuring, well, nobody's going to enforce this law up there. And so they went into what was predominantly British settlement and established the first American settlement on Puget Sound in what's now Tumwater. So there was that was sort of interesting because they were among the first to begin American expansion, not just into Oregon, but north into the part of Oregon that was where we in Washington State are now. (laughs) And um, eventually... The Americans gained leverage in negotiations over who got what. Uh, The Hudson Bay Company wasn't really happy about that. You know, they had been in charge of the whole Columbia River region. They'd been at Fort Vancouver. They had Fort Nisqually um, near what's now Tacoma. And they eventually just get pushed further and further north. Then there's the the border discussion. And they don't want to retreat any more than they have to. Mm-hmm. So the San Juan Islands then become this uh, place of potential conflict. And nobody's thinking of a war. Yeah. The Hudson Bay Company has a Bellevue uh, farm where it's a, a sheep ranch, basically, on uh, San Juan Island. You know, the, in terms of the European settlers, they have kind of a firm, the most sort of established hold on San Juan Island. Mm. Mm-hmm. But Americans begin pouring in there, too, and mostly squatters, people who aren't there you know, uh, for homesteading because the law doesn't apply there because it's disputed territory. But they're taking chunks of land. They're settling down. The British aren't very happy about it. The Americans are like, no, this is ours, you know, and you're not paying taxes. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, there's mm-hmm. there's rumblings for a few years of uh, problems. And, of course, the islands have been familiar and home to indigenous peoples who have been crossing what we think of as the borders. They have been, you know, northern tribes have been coming down. Many of the Coast Salish people use the islands on a seasonal basis, have camps and homes there. The Lummi, in particular, are well known for the islands. Yeah. You know, for millennia, it's been a gathering place, a, a place of um, great abundance. And ter- think of the salmon runs and the, yeah. you know, the the fish and that kind of thing. You know, so Americans want it for the same reason. British want it for the same reason. And, of course, uh, some of the islands, including San Juan, have large areas of prairie. Mm. Well, when you find cleared land like that, which may have, may have been cleared by indigenous people, it may have been cleared for millennia but because of the weather and because of other, you know, geologic factors. Mm-hmm. But when you find places like that, if you were a colonizer, you're thinking— Here's farmland, here's pasturage, uh, and that kind of thing. And so the San Juans had quite a bit of that in certain areas, including San Juan Island. So mm-hmm. it was seen as a, a, a good agricultural property. And there you are. You have a place that two sides want to own. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the conflict is mostly 
on paper or between officials who are going back and forth, and squatters who are rather unruly lot. The yeah. island is a little bit of a place where sailors and others uh, come to drink in uh-huh. sort of a, a little settled area there the Americans have created, which is basically a just a, a little bit of a roughneck Mm-hmm. kind of village there. And of course, this is looked down upon by the British who are looking at more civilized activities. <laughs> so anyway. So this is this is the scene on San Juan Island specifically. This is the scene on San Juan Island, which is at the center of this dispute. In June of 1859, things came to a boil when an American settler on San Juan shot a British-owned pig that was raiding his garden. An argument ensued each claiming to be the violated party. When they couldn't agree on a price for the dead hog, well, the dispute escalated. And so the British on San Juan Island specifically, they have farms with some sheep and pigs? Yes, the Hudson Bay Company has has a farm there, and they have barn animals, and there's a pig, a Berkshire boar, that they have brought, and uh, this boar keeps getting out of its whatever enclosure it's supposed to be in, and it's coming over to an American squatter, settler, and eating his garden. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, rooting in, in, in his garden. And there's a back and forth and, and uh, you know, keep your pig out of my garden. And it's like, well, why don't you put up a fence? Or, you know, there's some dis- mm-hmm. neighborly disagreement. But eventually the American settler gets upset and says, you know, I'm going to sh- shoot the pig if he comes over here again. And the pig comes over and he shoots the pig. Mm-hmm. Well, the British are very upset about this dead pig. And... <laughs> Uh, demand compensation. The owner of the pig says, well, you got to pay for it. And he names a price, which the American thinks is outrageous. Even, you know, it's basically, well, I don't owe you money, but if I did, I wouldn't pay that much for the pig. Mm-hmm. And this uh, argument ensues. And of course, it then comes down to, well, who has authority over this area? Right. And the Americans are feeling very threatened. The British have a huge presence. I mean, mm. Vancouver Island is a is a colony, a crown colony itself. Um, the man in charge, Sir James Douglas, is a fascinating uh, character. He rules the colony and the Hudson Bay Company. You know, extremely powerful, influential. The British Navy has ships, big ships near, nearby that have a port near Victoria. They have a lot of clout, military clout, um, mm. law enforcement clout. Samhain Island is a lot closer to the seat of British authority than it is to the seat of American authority, which is rather dispersed and, you know, could be as far away as certainly as um, Stillicum or even San Francisco. And so a hot-headed captain stationed in Bellingham is told to get over to San Juan Island and calm this thing down or check it out. And that is George Pickett, Mm -hmm. later famous as the Confederate leader in the Battle of Gettysburg of Pickett's Charge by name, you know, and he's, you know, West Point trained, known as as kind of, yeah, a hothead and a saber rattler. Well, he goes into San Juan Island determined to fight the British if they if they come and try to arrest anyone or if they try to assert their authority. 
He goes in with artillery, which he sets up, uh, you know, camp. And, of course, you know, this is tantamount to an invasion from the British point of view. It's like, mm. well, we we're still debating about who runs this place, but we can blow you to kingdom come if we want. <laughs> right. And so And you're coming in with your artillery. And so, so. the the British then send in warships. And these mm. are big warships too. I mean, you know, maybe with 32 30 pounder cannons. I mean, they come in and basically let Pickett know that, you know, they're sitting out in the bay and he he has deployed <laughs> he has deployed his troops in a very vulnerable way. Uh, and they're basically like, we could blow you up now. And, uh, you know, Pickett is, well, don't you dare. And then he moves his troops to a, a position that has much better sort of viewpoint on a hill. But it's all very unfriendly. Sir James Douglas is, you know, wanting to, you know, punish these guys. And he's he's still bitter about having to give up most of the Oregon territory. I mean, it's like mm -hmm. we've ceded enough to these guys. Mm -hmm. What makes what makes you think they're going to stop here, you know? So eventually, you know, you have to imagine this is 1859, getting orders to London to find out what they think you should do for the Americans trying to get information back to Washington, D.C., to President Buchanan. And what do you want us to do, you know, because... The guys on site are pretty trigger happy or ready to be if needed. Right. But the British sort of back off a little bit. They seem to, you know, have the cooler heads here in sort of, well, let's let's not arrest people, you know, let's just stay here, show a force. And it turns out that the Americans have a similar attitude. The last thing anybody wants right now in terms of the government is war with Britain. Mm -hmm. And the idea that it's come to an armed standoff literally over an argument about a dead pig and compensation for the pig. Yeah. And, of course, that's symbolic of this larger issue. But cooler heads prevail. The Americans send out Winfield Scott, hero of the Mexican War, the most senior general uh, to negotiate basically a treaty. And so, mm -hmm. fortunately, the war is averted in the short term or medium term, because the British and Americans agree to jointly, militarily occupy the island. We're both claiming this. We're going to have a diplomatic settlement. We're going to send this to arbitration in Europe. The arbitrator is the Kaiser of Germany. Wow. We're going to have a neutral arbiter who um, tells us where this border is going to go. <laughs> and so then it's sort of off stage from San Juan Island it's all in the hands of diplomats, American and British and German and other diplomats in Europe. And they're making the arguments pro and con for different borders. We'll be right back. The Port of Seattle has a mission to be the greenest and most energy-efficient port in North America. How? Here's one recent example. The port partnered with the community to construct the Duwamish River People's Park and Shoreline Habitat, the largest habitat restoration project on the Duwamish River in a generation, creating 14 acres of critical fish and wildlife habitat while providing public shoreline access. 
This large-scale restoration project supports recovery of the endangered southern resident orca population by significantly increasing habitat critical to abundance and health of Chinook salmon. For more on this project and the port, go to portseattle.org. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. There the two warring sides sat for the next dozen years or so. They got along quite well, celebrating holidays like the 4th of July and Queen Victoria's birthday together. They built roads and tried to control a population of settlers, smugglers, and whiskey sellers. San Juan Island is, is occupied by these two military camps for a dozen years. Yeah, basically until the yeah. early 1870s when the, when the dispute is finally resolved. And it's fascinating because you can go visit those camps. The, the two camps are part of the National Park Service. Mm-hmm. So they have kind of improved the visitor experience at the camp. They've uh, re- reconstructed some of the buildings. They give mm-hmm. you a sense of what camp life was like for the soldiers who were there. And on British camp at the other end of the island, it looks like you something you think the British would create. There's yeah. you know, white picket fences. There's gardens. You know, the kind of, uh, I mean, formal gardens, not just growing food gardens, but formal gardens. There was, you know, the officers' residence. There's a blockhouse, which is there. You can see barrack-like buildings. It's on this kind of quiet bay where um, it was deep enough for uh, ships to come in and resupply the camp. It's it's not in a place that looks like, oh, they're ready for war. Uh, mm-hmm. The American camp is like on this bluff and they they have a redoubt, you know, a, a dirt and stone uh, place where the cannons were emplaced. One of this is this one redoubt right at the top still exists and it's still the original digging and whatnots. One of the very few earthen redoubts that actually still exists. During the occupation, there was a, a, a road between the two camps was built, basically a military road so they could get supplies in and out. But it also provided a way that both ends of the island could communicate and the growing population there uh, mm-hmm. serve uh, them. And the soldiers were very peaceful to one another. They would celebrate holidays, Queen Victoria's birthday, or they would celebrate the 4th of July together with picnics. And so the soldiers in the Royal Marines got along famously, and um, it was pretty peaceful, which is interesting given the fact that, you know, much of the occupation occurred in, in the beginning years during America was having a civil war. I mean... Right, right. Pickett, of course, resigned his commission and, you know, went to join the Confederate Army. And there were other uh, other officers uh, here that fought for the Union side and left. Mm. And so, 
you know, neither neither country really wanted to go to war <laughs> during that kind of uh, uh, upheaval. If in diplomatic terms, it would have been, you know, very awkward. I suppose from the British side, you could sort of say, well, the Americans are tearing each other apart. We'll just, you know, yeah, we'll just kind of watch, mm-hmm. see what happens. So that's interesting. So it's called the Pig War, but in fact, it's actually a story of a war averted. Right. It's the Pig Non-War. It's a... It's actually, you know, a, a, an example of how not to go to war. There, there are a lot of different theories that even people in the aftermath of the Civil War about why the American officers like Pickett were really kind of pushing to go to war. Mm-hmm. And there were some conspiracy theories about that. One was that Pickett wanted America and Britain to go to war so... Um, there's two versions of the theory. One is that so the South wouldn't secede because we'd be distracted. One mm. was so that the South could secede and America would be in, not in a position to prevent it because they'd be at war right. with Britain. Yeah. That's mm. just one of the theories. There's another thing, apparently, I was told by a historian who who's researched this, that um, Sir James Douglas at least pondered the thought that during the Civil War, Britain just might move back south and reoccupy some of that beautiful land and Puget Sound down to the Columbia River that they had given up. Was this an opportunity? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was the Civil War an opportunity to mm-hmm. get get some of that land back? So these were these were things that sort of came up. Pickett was a very controversial character. He was, you know, adored by some and loathed by others. And... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and he, <clears throat> I think he and his superior officer, General Harney, were, I think, suspected of being unhappy when expansion wasn't happening and unhappy when fighting wasn't happening. But I think both of them, in terms of how the American government viewed them, I think there was some sense that they had gone too far to have pushed it to the point where not only the big military guns, but the big diplomatic guns had to come in and try to solve a problem that that shouldn't have ever gotten that big. The entire ruckus was settled in 1872 when the final arbitrator, Kaiser Wilhelm I of Germany, decided the American border claim was the right one. Despite an American win, the spirit of mutual respect lives on. The National Park Service is in charge of two historic pig war sites located at either end of the island. Every day, the American and British flags are still raised over the respective old military camps where the war they were sent to fight was so wisely avoided. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Jonah Cohen, and the executive producer is Mark Bumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org.
The video series is now in its sixth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through mid-November. You can subscribe to the Mosspack podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We want to know what you think. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers even greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.